Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. This, this is, is a Soul Fire, Fire production. production. Recording in progress. I guess that must mean it's in the time for another episode of the Birthing Instincts Podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'm so happy when I get to do podcasts with you. I love it when you're happy. It's it's like exciting for me because there's so much information out there. Yeah. And this focuses me on what's important for me for this week. So I spend, you know, several hours getting ready to podcast with you. I get up early Uh, this morning. My cleaning lady didn't show up. So I was doing laundry and prepping for the podcast, but uh, <laughs> amazing. Yeah, but it's been great. It's been a very quiet week for me. Um, I've had no births this week. Uh, what are you doing? <laughs> it's very quiet for me too. I'm living the monk's life, really. It's kind of kind of how it is. Well, you, you almost it almost looks like you're in a cathedral there. I know you're in somebody's right? house with the, with the wood beams and the beautiful window and the woods. Can you see the trees? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so pretty. So it must be so, cold. Um, it must be cold because you're all wrapped up and you're inside. Yeah. Well, I don't usually do a fire until later in the day because I'm gonna go take a walk. It's not raining today, so definitely a good walk day. Um, but it will be raining the rest of the week. So I'll be doing yoga inside and um yeah, just taking good care of myself, making making some plans for my return. Um I posted yesterday on Instagram. I've I've made the official decision to come back to midwifery. I saw that. Um, I saw that post. Yeah, it was. It was some soul searching for sure. And, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure that it was in doubt. I thought that you'd always come back. I just didn't know when or where. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I wasn't mm-hmm. sure. Um, I'm in conversation with a midwife in uh, San Luis Obispo about possibly a partnership there. I'm um, considering Santa Barbara. Um, obviously still considering um, the Bay Area. So well, Santa Barbara's actually close. I know. I thought Santa Barbara might be nice because I could still um, see my friends in LA and I still have, you know, the contacts from Los Angeles, but I'm not in LA. So yeah. And Santa Barbara now, and contrary to when I was doing a lot of um bursts up there, it's quite a down the last year or two, but I used to do a lot of VBACs and things up there they've now the midwives up there are now doing VBACs they've battled with a cottage hospital up there and they've got acceptance to doing VBACs because it's in their purveyance to do it and it's ethically the right thing to be offering right even though cottage hospital is still against it and there's a marvelous uh, physician up there uh, getting clobbered with all the work that she's getting Uh, Dr. Drake we've talked about her on the podcast before yeah. And, uh, so that's that would be great. San Luis Obispo is not that far either. It's only about three hours what north. Um. Yeah. I think about three so. hours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that would be better, much better than you being up in who knows where. Someone put in a uh, a vote for us to do the um, West Coast Farm in Ojai, but I said I think Stu's leaving California. So. Yeah. I mean, we'll. We'll get to that more as, as the news keeps getting worse. <laughs> but um, yeah, Ohio. I used to live. I used to have a place in Ohio when Maddie was little. 
Yeah. That's where I first hung out with you is in Ojai. All right. Yeah. Way back when. Way back when. Well, some uh, women in California are going to be quite lucky that you're um, planning to come back to birthing. So I'm thrilled that you you. have made that decision. Thank you. And I got a little message today from uh, our our partner, Silverette, saying that people had been using our code. Um, So great. Keep it up. We love that. We love getting that feedback. We're so happy about that. Yeah, and speaking of our partners, it's probably time for us to do a partner break and talk a little bit about Element. Uh, Element. Yeah, Element's a tasty electrolyte drink that you know of, and and mm-hmm. um, I'm waiting for my samples because I actually will try Element. I will I will sacrifice uh, diet soda. Uh, oh, good. And I will try it. I think I'm going to try the raspberry because I like raspberry. But there's some they have multiple good flavors. I actually went to. Yeah, the- I think. I think the one I really liked was like mango chili or something. It was good. Yeah, they have um, watermelon salt, citrus salt, orange salt, raspberry salt, raw unflavored. I probably would like that one too. That's probably going to be my favorite. Uh, Mango chili, lemon, habanero, and chocolate salt. Yeah, so the, the point is that they don't have sugar and they're good for people who are avoiding sugar. So that would be our uh, mamas who are um, watching their carbohydrates and diabetics, and um, they give you the electrolytes that you need if your body is not um, kind of holding on to uh, water retention the way that we would want you to in terms of like um, not being dehydrated. Yeah, it's got science-backed electrolyte ratios, and it's uh, got none of the junk, which we like to say. No BS. Yeah, no BS, no fuckery. No, you haven't used that word for a while. And you know, somebody sent me an email with the word in it. And I said, I got to bring it back up on the podcast because one of our favorite words. So that's correct. No artificial ingredients, no gluten. And by the way, you can get um, a free sample pack for only shipping, which I think is $5. If you go to drinklmnt.com slash birthing instincts. So if you put in our a promo code um, after drinklmt.com, you can order a free sample pack for just shipping. Great, awesome. Okay, thank you, Element. Appreciate you very much. Okay, well, yeah, it's helping me out, so that's great. Okay, so um, I'm gonna catch up on some follow-up. Um, I have very good, little good news on follow-up. I got one item that's good news, and maybe you have one um, on the rubella thing, but let me just say that I noticed that um, in um, both Iceland and Sweden and Norway and Belgium, I think, are all stopping vaccine mandates for people under 30. I'm so glad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to put that out there that that there's more data out there. And we're going to get to something in a little bit that's a little bit of a follow-up from last week about the Federation of State Medical Boards. I've, I've, I've dived much deeper into that. And the things they're saying are very chilling. Um, and, you know, they're talking about spreading misinformation and they're, they're saying to the people that are, are arguing about science and about, about using your, using common sense are the people that are spreading misinformation. And I wonder if that ever, when it all comes out that they're the ones that have been spreading misinformation, if they'll all quit or resign or, or disboard themselves, but I'm sure that they won't. Sure. We'll get there. We'll get there in a second. Um, what do you want to tell us about rubella? Because you found a little bit about that. Well, I did want to say our topic today is about genetic testing, 
And um, I do have a client letter that I'll read right when we get started that kind of um, spurred us to be talking about it today. But we did want to follow up about rubella because you had asked me a question that I didn't know about whether or not you should uh, pump and dump um, once you get your vaccine. So uh, rubella vaccine is not recommended in pregnancy. Um, if you do get the rubella uh, vaccine, you should wait at least four, four weeks before getting pregnant. And if you get it postpartum and you're breastfeeding, um, what it says is very occasionally rubella vaccine has been found in breast milk, but this is not, um, has not caused any symptoms in the baby. And then another one says a study of um, vaccinated moms did not show transmission into the breastfeeding infants. However, rubella vaccine virus can appear in breast milk and result in infections in some infants. So I would assume that uh, if, you, if you're choosing to get the rubella vaccine, that you probably want to abstain from breastfeeding for a period of time, which it didn't actually give me yeah, and why why would you? I mean, I know that when I was back in my residency and back in my early years at Cedars Sinai, you know, we wanted to rubella vaccine was one of the standing orders on the postpartum order sheet. You could check a box and they would give the mother who was rubella non-immune rubella vaccine. And we just automatically did it. Uh -huh. And the question that you you know that I didn't ask myself then, and people still aren't asking themselves now is risk benefit ratio. What's the right. odds in this environment that we have right now that a breastfeeding woman who's staying home 95% of the time is going to catch German measles from somebody? And maybe they should just wait until they're done breastfeeding if they decide to do it at all. Um, but to do it while you're breastfeeding just makes it just I, I, the risk benefit ratio to me just doesn't make any sense at all. Right. Okay. So there you and, go. And the other thing I'll say is you can't compare each one vaccine to all vaccines. So the recommendations for rubella should not be compared to the COVID-19 vaccine or any other vaccine because they're, they're different. They're completely different in how they're made. So yes. I've got some information on that. We're going to follow up on some of that. And this is um, this stuff is sort of frustrating to me and depressing and a bit chilling. But let's let's go through some of this to catch up on some of the stuff we talked about in the last couple of weeks. I just read an article that said a federal judge has ruled against natural immunity. <laughs> okay. that's, that's the headline. Okay. Wow. And this is in the Epoch Times. Uh, some people think that's a conservative site. It probably is. But, it, you know, and headlines are meant to get people to read their article. But that's the headline. Federal judge rules against natural immunity. And, and this took place in Michigan, but it's also taken place in California, where people have appealed the vaccine mandates under the grounds that they've already had COVID. And a judge citing a Jacobson decision um, from 1905 um, has said that he doesn't have the purveyance to, to overthrow that decision. So they use that as an excuse. And I, I think these base, base, this is basically a cowardly decision um, because yeah. um, the Jacobson decision really has nothing to do with what's happening now. But in order for me to say that, I got a fairly quick summary of the Jacobson decision because nobody knows what I'm talking about. And right. most people aren't going to go and look it up, but that's some of the things I did uh, in the last couple of days for to prep for today. So let me just read a, a little summary of the Jacobson versus Commonwealth of Massachusetts in 1905. Mr. Jacobson believed that the scientific basis for vaccination was unsound and that he would suffer if he was vaccinated. And this was about the uh, smallpox epidemic. 
it's interesting to know that we had a vaccine for smallpox back in 1905. I didn't, I, I'm surprised that, I, I mean, I, I should have known that, but I didn't know that. Yeah, um, I didn't either. I knew they had it by 1940 something because I know that uh, Claire Fraser had it in Outlander when she went back in time. She had already gotten the smallpox vaccine. So that's how I knew it was at least in 1940 something or other eight, I think. The Massachusetts Supreme Court found that the statute consistent with Massachusetts state constitution and Jacobson appealed to the United States Supreme Court. The Supreme Court examined the issues of whether involuntary vaccination violated Jacobson's quote, inherent right of every free man to care for his body his own body and health in such a way as seems to him best, unquote. The court bifurcated this question, first considering the right of the state to invade Jacobson's person by forcing him to submit to vaccination. The court said, this court has more than once recognized it as a fundamental principle that persons and property are subjected to all kinds of restraints and burdens in order to secure the general comfort, health, and prosperity of the state of the perfect right of the legislature to do which no question ever was, or upon acknowledged general principles ever can be made, so far as natural persons are concerned. I don't really understand the last part, but if you slow it down and play it over again, you might be able to figure it out. Anyway, what they're saying is that the, the state does have sometimes a, a, a pressing interest to override personal autonomy. Like, you can't yell fire in a movie theater. I mean, it's a terrible example, but mm -hmm. can't do that. Okay. With this language, the court stated the basic bargain of civilization an individual must give up some personal freedom in exchange for the benefits of being in a civilized society. Jacobson sought to enjoy the benefit of his neighbors being vaccinated for smallpox without personally accepting the risks inherent in vaccination. The court rejected Jacobson's claim, which it viewed as an attempt to be a quote, free rider on society. Okay, mm -hmm. that's important because I'm gonna come back to that. Okay. The court next considered Jacobson's right to contest the scientific basis of the Massachusetts vaccination requirement, accepting that some reasonable people still question the efficacy of vaccination. Hmm. The court nonetheless found it was within the legislature's prerogative to adopt one from many conflicting views on scientific issue. Okay, so the court rejected his plea and he was actually forcibly vaccinated. But what's interesting about this is this was based on, on him not wanting to be vaccinated against a disease that he hadn't had yet. So he could be a free rider on society. Right. That has nothing to do, no correlation whatsoever with people who have already recovered from a disease. This would be the same right. thing as if he recovered from smallpox and then they made him be vaccinated. That's right. not what Jacobson did at all. So to cite Jacobson, and I'm not a legal authority, but I'm a common sense guy, but to cite Jacobson as a reason that you have to vaccinate people who've already had a disease, Makes no sense. I believe these judges are cowards. Yeah. Well, okay. and there's um, there's also the added risk of getting the vaccine if you've already had immunity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but that, I guess I'm mean, as a judge. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But as a judge, I think that 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 you know you're not going to get into the science of it. You're looking at the rights of it, and you're right. There is a there is a risk of injury from this, especially to people who've already been vaccinated. I mean, already recovered from the disease, sorry. Mm -hmm. Take a breath, okay. The next, the next one really, really bugs me. Okay, and this is the American College of OBGYN now jumping on the bandwagon of, the, of what I read last week about the Federation of State Medical Boards. And I wanna read an email I got from ACOG, not to me, obviously, just to everybody in general. 
because I'm, I'm a member. And um, they wrote this, COVID-19 vaccination, pregnancy and medical misinformation. How can you help? So, you know, I mean, both sides are obviously um, hyping and propagandizing their um, headlines. But this is, this is what they're, they're saying. Obstetricians and gynecologists remain engaged in an ongoing effort to encourage vaccination of pregnant patients. We do. Who are suffering and dying, by the way, they, they, they say these words, who are suffering and dying from COVID-19 in hospitals across the country. The spread of misinformation and mistrust in doctors and science is contributing to staggeringly low vaccination rates among pregnant people, reports suggest. So again, when somebody says experts say or anonymous person says or reports suggest, you know, give us examples of what you're talking about. Put reference numbers there, ACOG. Don't just say reports suggest because who's writing the reports? You guys are. And if it's staggeringly low rates of pregnant women getting the vaccine, is it possible that these women are smart enough to no. do research and think for themselves? No, it's because we as physicians are violating our code of ethics by telling them that they, to not possibly not get vaccinated. That's why. Right. The only reason they're not being vaccinated is because we as physicians aren't coercing them enough. Yeah, and women yeah. can't think for themselves. They need to have those decisions made for them. You're so smart. <laughs> so ACOG is asking its members to sign an open letter endorsing COVID vaccination. ACOG, I will not be signing that, okay? It says this, the vast majority of people who are hospitalized and dying from COVID-19 are unvaccinated. I'm not sure that that's true, at least not in the Israeli study, it's not true, but I don't, uh, you know, and they're not talking about pregnant people there. They're just talking about unvaccinated people being more likely to be hospitalized. And maybe that's true. And actually, you know, I was with my, my buddy Lex this weekend. We, um, we got in some poker and um, we had dinner one night and he was telling me that, you know, where he works in Minneapolis, um, most of the people in the ICU there are unvaccinated. And I believe him. I mean, they're mm -hmm. old. They're all old and infirm where he works. Yeah. About pregnant mm -hmm. people. But that may be true. But in the Israeli study, there was a lot because 90% of the people in Israel are vaccinated. There's still lots of ICU, ICU admissions of vaccinated people. So, and then seven in 10 people have not been vaccinated against the disease, according to the CDC. That's probably for pregnant people, I guess. Yeah, we just said that. Mm -hmm. Members are reporting to ACOG that they are extending themselves in time-consuming and often creative ways to convert one unvaccinated pregnant person at a time. So we, we've heard it last couple of weeks, we've heard a couple of clips that I played about these doctors who are telling you what things you can say to patients to make them, you know, be excited about getting the vaccine. Convert. Convert, yes. <laughs> I love that you're listening to the words that I'm saying. Sometimes they go in one ear, I mean, they go, they come into my mouth, out of my mouth without me really thinking what I'm saying. Because I've read this a couple of times already. So. Clinicians have a responsibility to encourage COVID-19 vaccination among all eligible people. Okay, so they say, they go, evidence-based vaccination recommendations. And I put in the margin here, I said, how do they say this? The evidence clearly shows that COVID-19 vaccines are safe and effective, including during pregnancy. And I'm a purveyor of misinformation. Okay, they say pregnancy is a risk factor for severe complications from COVID-19. I have some data on that, by the way, and we'll get to that. Okay. Um, 
ACOG and the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine strongly recommend that all pregnant people be vaccinated against COVID-19. Leading medical organizations have repeatedly affirmed that COVID-19 vaccines have no impact on fertility. Mm -hmm. right. The Federation of State Medical Boards, so they're, rec they're, they're emphasizing disciplinary action against physicians who spread vaccine misinformation. And they're quoting the Federation of State Medical Boards, the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology and others have issued unambiguous statements about the importance of medical and professional ethics and the danger of spreading misinformation, underlined, about the COVID-19 vaccines. Physicians promoting false vaccine information risk disciplinary action, potentially including the loss of their medical licenses. The ACOG Code of Professional Ethics states that all obstetrician gynecologists should contribute positively to the well-being of individual patients. Notice they say individual patients. Does that mean individualizing your patients or does that just mean patients as individuals? To the healthcare system and to the public good. Spreading inaccurate information about COVID-19 Vaccines violates that code and can subject ACOG fellows to disciplinary action by the college. So I've got a couple things about that. As more info is exposed on the problems with this vaccine, potential problems in pregnancy down the road, will the same unethical actions be considered for disciplinary action? And will all the people that put out this piece of paper, um, will they submit themselves to disciplinary action? Will they... Um, kick themselves out of their own organization. You know, when, when, when some of the things they're saying are labeled misinformation, I mean, how can they say that they're safe and effective and not put in anything about the fact that there's huge amounts of breakthrough, that after four or five months, more than 50% of people who are vaccinated and are susceptible to catching and spreading COVID. And they, and they don't say that, they just say safe and effective. And 8,000 people have been reported on VAERS having died. No, it's up to 14 or 15,000 now. There you go. Right. So what they're saying basically is, is that doctors like Simone Gold and Dr. Malone and Dr. McCullough and Dr. Cole and Dr. McDonald and all those doctors who signed the Barrington Declaration of which I was one and all the people who signed the recent Rome Declaration which I was one were all unethical, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of doctors and we should all be kicked out of the profession because we don't think that their science is sound? Yeah, that's what they're saying. So this is, this is chilling and frightening. And the yeah. question is, who are these people? How can there be consensus? How do they sit in a room? Are they all agreeing? Is there any disagreement? And if you're disagreeing with these people from ACOG, if you're sitting on that panel and you're one of the minority that's disagreeing, why don't you resign? Why don't you speak out? Where are you? Um, so I just mentioned the Rome Declaration. And I think it's worthy of, I think probably most people never heard of this. Have you ever heard of this? No. Okay. And you're, and you're sort of in, in, the, in the middle of it and you haven't heard of it. So I think it's really important to, to tell you a little bit about this declaration because this just came out this in September, all right? It was a, a, a meeting of people that met in, of scientists and physicians who met in Rome uh, who were non-political, just physicians. Yeah. No politics. Good. So let me read this because it, it <laughs> takes a second. Over 10,000 physicians and medical, 10,000, by the way, physicians and medical scientists worldwide have signed the Rome Declaration. And I think this was dated um, September 23rd. So by now it's probably double that, I suspect. Um, 
to alert citizens about the deadly consequences of the COVID-19 policymakers and medical authorities' unprecedented behavior, behavior such as denying patient access to life-saving early treatments, mainly hydroxychloroquine and iver ivermectin, disrupting the sacred physician-patient relationship and suppressing open scientific discussion for profits and power. The declaration was created by physicians and scientists during the Rome COVID summit and immediately catalyzed support from doctors around the world. These professionals, many of whom are on the front lines of pandemic treatment, have experienced career threats, character assassination, censorship of scientific papers and research, <clears throat> social media accounts blocked, online search results manipulated. That's true. When I, go, when I do a search for this sort of stuff, I have to go to page three to find something from a reliable source. Yeah. Clinical trials and patient observations banned and their professional history and accomplishments minimized in both academic and mainstream media. Though the declaration signatories are diverse in their specialties, treatment philosophies, and medical opinions, they have risen up to take a collective stand against authoritarian measures by corporations, medical associations, and governments and their respective agencies. The objective of the declaration is to reclaim their leadership role in conquering this pandemic. In concert with the declaration, the signatories have created a doctors and scientists only COVID information platform so that citizens can make informed decisions for their families without interruption, manipulation, politicization, or profiteering from external forces outside the doctor-patient relationship. So I tried to find the link, but I didn't, I was running out of time this morning. But people can go to um, the, um, just search, and I wouldn't search in Google, I'd search in something else for the Rome uh, Declaration. And you probably can we, put, be, can we put a link on our show notes? Yes, where you can go and make, get a doctors and scientists only COVID information platform. Because otherwise, everything is politicized. Yeah, Every, and everything. it shouldn't be. Of course it shouldn't be. Yeah, of yeah. It's basic stuff. So. <laughs> basic because, stuff because well it's just basic free stuff freedom it's freedom it's liberty it's personal autonomy and integrity and informed decision making and and um you know respecting uh bodily autonomy it just it just it when we don't have that we don't have anything okay so just just so people understand what the summit says this is a summary it says, we the physicians of the world united and loyal to the Hippocratic Oath, recognizing the profession of medicine as we know it is at a crossroad and are compelled to declare the following. I might get emotional, so. I love when you get emotional. Yeah, well, I might. Whereas it is our utmost responsibility and duty to uphold and restore the dignity, integrity, art, and science of medicine. Where it is there is an unprecedented assault on our ability to care for our patients. Whereas public policymakers have chosen to force a one size fits all treatment strategy resulting in needless illness and death, rather than upholding fundamental concepts of the individualized, personalized approach to patient care, which has proven to be safe and more effective, whether physicians and other healthcare providers, excuse me, whereas physicians and other healthcare providers working on the front lines, utilizing their knowledge of epidemiology, pathophysiology, and pharmacology are often first to identify new, potentially life-saving treatments Whereas physicians are increasingly being discouraged from engaging in open professional discourse and the exchange of ideas about new and emerging diseases, not only endangering the essence of the medical profession, but more importantly, more tragically, the lives of our patients. Whereas thousands of physicians are being prevented from providing treatment to their patients as a result of barriers put up by pharmacies, hospitals, and public health agencies, 
rendering the vast majority of healthcare providers helpless to protect their patients in the face of disease. Physicians are now advising their patients to simply go home, allowing the virus to replicate and return when their disease wor worsens or their lips turn blue, I added that, resulting in hundreds of thousands of unnecessary patient deaths due to failure to treat. Whereas this is not medicine, this is not care, these policies may actually constitute crimes against humanity. Yes. Now, now therefore, it is resolved that the physician-patient relationship must be restored. The very heart of medicine is this relationship, which allows physicians to best understand their patients and their illnesses, to formulate treatments that give the best chance for success while the patient is an active participant in their care. Bravo. Basic stuff, right? <laughs> Back to yeah. basic stuff. Where it is therefore also resolved that the political intrusion into the practice of medicine and the physician-patient relationship must end. Physicians and all healthcare providers must be free to practice the art of science and science of medicine without fear of retribution, censorship, slander, or disciplinary action, ACOG and Federal State Federation of State Medical Boards, including possible loss of licensure and hospital privileges, loss of insurance contracts, and interference from government entities and organizations which further prevent us from caring for patients in need. More than ever, the right inability to exchange objective scientific findings further our understanding of disease must be protected. Resolved that physicians must defend the right to prescribe treatment, observing the tenet of first do no harm. Physicians shall not be restricted from prescribing safe and effective treatments. These restrictions continue to cause unnecessary sickness and death. The rights of patients after being fully informed about the risks and benefits of each option must be restored to receive those treatments. Ramelstone. Resolved that we invite physicians of the world and all healthcare providers to join us in this noble cause as we endeavor to restore trust, integrity, and professionalism to the practice of medicine. <clears throat> Resolve that we invite the scientists of the world who are skilled in biomedical research and uphold the highest ethical and moral standards to insist on their ability to conduct and publish objective empirical research without fear of reprisal upon their careers, reputations, and livelihoods. Yes. Resolve that we invite patients who believe that the, in the importance of their physician-patient relationship and the ability to be active participants in their care to demand access to science-based medical care. And then it says, in witness thereof, the understand have signed this declaration. And then it goes on to name them most important signers, but I'm sure they're well over 10,000 people right now. And while I read this to you and I get emotional about it, there's still research going on in Wuhan lab and other labs around the world about making more deadly viruses and more genetic modifications and more stuff. And whether this was a leak or whether this was purposeful or whatever, these people, they, they are guilty of crimes against humanity. We all know who they are and nobody's stopping them. And the current administration is ridiculously impotent or they're, or they're complicit. I mean, I don't want to speculate. Or they're just stupid, yeah, which may be the best answer altogether. Anyway, I just think it's really, really important um, that people understand that. You can go and sign that. I mean, if you're a healthcare provider, I think you can go there. You can sign it. I, you know, if you're not, a, I don't think you have to be a physician to sign it, but maybe, maybe you do. So, but just go read it. Go, go support them because we have to do it now. We have to stand up now. Yes. We are the majority. We are the 51%. We're more like the 90 something percent, but 
I mean, of people who believe in, at least in our country, believe in freedom and individual choice. And um, we're getting bullied and we've got to stop getting bullied and we've got to stand up. And some of us are going to take it on the chin. Um, but it's okay because in the end, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, you know, in the end, you shall know them by Matthew 7, 16. How often have I quoted the Bible on uh, the Birthing Instincts podcast? Not very often. From Matthew 7, 16. Some of you know who that is. I mean, what that is. You shall know them by their fruit. Their appearance and their claims are no proof of their true character. So the fruit of what these guys are doing that are the politicians, the pharmaceutical companies, the pharmacies, the corporations that are doing right now, you know, it's, it's fruit of the, it's poison. It's fruit of the poison tree. And you shall know them by the results that we're getting and what's happening. And in the end, hopefully there, somebody will judge them, whether it's in this world or the next. Thank you for your passion. I'm going to skip the next one because I'm too passionate right now. <laughs> so I wanted to um, read a couple of letters before we get into genetic testing. And um, these are much more uplifting. So it's probably a good thing to do. This first letter, do you have any comment by that anyway? No, I mean, uh, I'm, I, yeah, it's, you know, it's come across in so many different ways over, over my adult life. Um, you know, I, it's very sad, but it's, as I've said before, it's systemic. It, it's happened, you know, historically many, that. many times over. Um, and, uh, yeah. So it's, that's been part of my soul searching is like, you know, where does my voice fit in? You know, what can I do? What can I feel good about? Um, how can I still live a joyful life while um, feeling like I'm fighting so many battles that are so overwhelming? Um, but I do agree with what you've mentioned many times in the last several weeks about like, you know, we have to have the courage to stand up for what's right and to speak out because um, this is a big one. It's a really, it's a really big one. And we're not going to know the results uh, economically, um, emotionally, or uh, immuno immunologically um, for a very long time. Uh, you know, it'll take years for us to see uh, how this affects us long term in terms of cancer and other ways that it affects our immune system. So um, it makes us more susceptible to future viruses. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And more dependent so, and more dependent on pharmaceutical companies and stuff like that. You're right. Most vaccines um, don't come to market for at least 10 years. And in that period of time, they can look at potential, these potential things that you talked about, like immunologic responses, autoimmune and cancer. Um, this is, you know, in our, in our little, this is, it's, this is on a global scale right now, which is why it's so passionate, but you're right. This has been going on long before they were burning witches, but this is, but even, even what they, what they've done, like the organizational things of medicine, the insurance companies colluding hospitals against home birthing. It's just a microcosm of this now. What's going on worldwide? Um, you know the yeah. fact that the fact that uh, 
ACOG, bad mouth home birthing, the fact that insurance companies won't reimburse for home birthing. Why do you think insurance companies don't reimburse for home birthing? It's cheaper. Yeah. So <laughs> why do you think they, they would? Why do you think they don't do it? Yeah, uh, because they're, you know, they're all in bed together. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Can you prove it? Is there a smoking gun? I mean, I, I suppose if you could subpoena the emails, you probably could find it somewhere someplace where somebody from hospitals are talking to somebody from insurances or talking to somebody from ACOG and they're all discussing, you know, colluding maybe. Because yeah. why wouldn't insurance companies look for the cheapest way out? Yeah, makes no sense. It makes no sense. But it, yeah. neither does vaccine mandates on people who've already had the disease. So yeah. the whole world doesn't make sense. That's but, true. But here's okay, something. Okay, let's have some good letter. News. Yeah, well, here's something that if I could put up an emoji right now, it'd be that little, that little um, um, blushing emoji person. Yeah. <laughs> that little blush, blushing one, because here, here's something that, that's good news. And that, that, yeah. that should be uplifting to you and me specifically, but, but I just want to read it. So this is from Lauren and uh, she says, hi, Dr. Stu. I started listening to your podcast back in February of 2020. Wow, that's interesting. That's right when the pandemic started. So, And I emailed you with my operative report to get a second opinion on a candidacy for a trial of labor after cesarean. So this is one of those things where I, before I put in my uh, consultation uh, service thing, this was the kind of thing where I would elaborately respond back and forth with somebody for, for yeah. a while. Right. My first was born via cesarean due to breach presentation. <laughs> And his unexpected large size resulted in a jade incision during surgery. A jade incision is a low transverse incision in the uterus, which in the, on the one, one side, usually the opposite side of the surgeon, they cut up to make it into a little like a little L or a little hook. They call it a jade. It's not a, it's not a vertical incision and it's not a classical incision. Right. My OB had told me I would never be able to be back because of this. It was your response assuring me that a trial of labor after cesarean was not contraindicated and your encouragement to pursue a TOLAC that sent me on my journey to advocate for myself. And I just wanted to know what impact you had on me and my birth. Aww. Well, goes on. I know, but I already, I already have the feels. I made the decision early on in my pregnancy to stay with my same OB. I saw her midwife at 12 weeks who agreed with your assessment and said that Jade incisions are not uncommon. And she supported my hospital-based hospital -based trial of labor mm -hmm. with them before. My OB was definitely not as comfortable and gave me a lot of pushback, but I expressed I had gotten a second opinion from another doctor, parentheses you, parentheses, and told <laughs> her I would not be having a C-section unless it was a medical uh, emergency. Listening to your podcast prior to and throughout my pregnancy taught me so much about evidence-based care, questioning the medical model, advocating for myself and trusting my intuition. At my 20-week anatomy scan, I was told two things that seemed to contradict each other. One, the baby had a marginal cord insertion. And two, the baby was given a large for gestational age diagnosis. <laughs> so at the end of the appointment, the maternal fetal medicine doctor doing the ultrasound wanted me to, told me they wanted me to see me back at 34 weeks. So 14 weeks later, to make sure the baby wasn't restricted in growth by the cord insertion, but she also predicted he would be nine or 10 pounds. Mm -hmm. uh, she, she writes, uh, what? Too small and too large all at once, laugh out loud. <laughs> Naturally, I declined this growth scan. I didn't want any scare tactics thrown my way about baby size, 
If he was already looking larger than average, clearly the marginal cord was not having much of an effect. Had I not been taught to question these things, I likely would have left worried and unsure. I continued to push forward in advocating for my birth choices. And each appointment, my OB seemed to loosen up more and more, seeing that I was not relenting in my decision. I made it clear I would find a different doctor if she didn't support me. Great. Mm -hmm. I told her I do... I just knew that God would open my pelvis and guide this baby out. And I had a strong feeling that he would weigh eight pounds, two ounces. So what mammals know and we have forgotten, quote unquote, which is our episode 211, aired a week prior to my delivery. And it completely shaped my mindset all through my labor and delivery. That's that great. Lovely. Yes. On the day I delivered my son, I labored at home for about three hours in no pain at all, just accepting the surges. We finally left for the 50 minute drive to the hospital and in the entire drive, I was praying that the right doctors would be on call to honor my choices. That's always an issue. Your doctor may not be the one on call. Right. All along, I had a peaceful intuition that everything was going to work out. When we arrived, the OB hospitalist never once touched me, checked me, never mentioned rupture, did not ask me to be in a mask, just came in and, just came in and said, happy laboring. Yay. And left my room. Boy, where do you find doctors like that? No one knew we were coming or had, or had my chart to see my jade incision. And I was progressing too quickly to be confronted with any bullshit beyond a blood test and an IV. My son was born three hours later in three pushes, weighing eight pounds, three ounces. I was able to push in whatever position I wanted. I declined postpartum pitocin, erythromycin, and the hep B vaccine with zero pushback from any nurse or doctor. The hospitalist Great. told me afterwards that I was a total badass. <laughs> And that the OB who actually delivered me said that the primal way I pushed and how I wanted to, and then when I wanted was too incredible to watch. I just wanted to thank you for being the encouragement and voice of reason and knowledge. I needed to pursue a TOLAC because it's because of your podcast that I achieved this. I will forever look back at the birth with a fondness of the two of you and the role you unknowingly played. Your knowledge and bliss's wisdom has changed the tra trajectory of my family and my maternal health care. And I'm eternally grateful to both of you. <laughs> you made me cry. <laughs> Three thank yous. Okay. <laughs> You're welcome. You know You're where welcome. she lives? You know where Lauren lives? Huh? Could be a sign. Could be a sign? Where? Yeah. San Luis Obispo. Oh, look at that. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's funny. I, I, I did not even realize that, that she was in San Luis Obispo. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Serendip uh, serendipity. So that's, that's what we need. We need to know we're making a difference. Every time someone sends me a message on uh, Instagram, I'm like, thank you so much for letting us know. Cause it really helps to know that, you know, it makes, it, it makes an impact it really does. And <laughs> I, I, I'm sure that's why you're so moved today. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's pretty emotional. Um, you know what? I think I'm going to um, leave that letter. I'll leave this next letter for next time because that was such a good letter. I can't, okay, I, good. I can't outdo it. But I, so we got to get into genetic testing. But before we do that, we have to talk about our one of our top favorite subjects. You know what it is. Boobies. <laughs> yeah. Tell us, tell us a little bit about our another part of ours is bamboobies. And uh, so tell us, because you're the, you're the product expert. I'm just the uh, spokesperson. <laughs> Bamboobies is a bamboo-based company, which is a renewable uh, resource. Um, and if you're wanting to do things that help the environment, you want to use products that are 
reusable. And so they've, they've definitely expanded their line since we had them at the sanctuary, but my all-time favorite is their um, reusable bamboo nursing pads. They're soft, then they have this beautiful heart shape, which makes it um, so that you can't really see them through your clothing. So um, it was one of the things that Alex and I chose for our eco boutique that we loved so much. And now they have all these amazing teas and uh, nursing bras a salve too right Stu they have have the organic nipple balm which is um, nipple balm yeah Mm -hmm. which has like natural ingredients like has extra virgin olive oil beeswax shea butter marshmallow root I'm getting hungry (laughs) 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 and candle and can a calendula flower not sure what that is but calendula it's good for healing oh Mm -hmm. see all right calendula and I learned a new word no, lan- mm-hmm. no lanolin, parabens, other synthetic fragrances, or, or and it's not tested on animals. Right. So the company, you know, you can go and they, their code uh, gives you 40% off. 40%? Which, uh, which is amazing. So you yeah. can go and check them out and know that they're a good company and anything that you buy from them has been vetted and is really good for the environment and for yourself and for your baby. Yep. So go to bamboobies.com. And use the code instincts, I-N-S-T-I-N-C-T-S. Everybody knows how to spell instincts by now. If you don't, <laughs> shame on you. And go to and you get 40% off your purchase. So bamboobies.com, uh, promo code instincts. Yeah. And when you support our sponsors and use our codes, then they know that this is making a difference and people will continue to sponsor and we can continue to give great information. And get very emotional. So, you know, it's interesting in our intro, we say, in our, sometimes yeah. we cry. <laughs> yeah. All yeah. right. So I'm going to read a letter. Oh, yes, that's and right. You have a letter off. because we're going to talk about genetic testing. And so you have a letter to lead yeah. us in. Yeah, I'm going to read a letter to, to kick us off. And uh, this, this mama wants to be anonymous. She's from California, but uh, yeah, she uh, feels like she might get some pushback from people who know her husband if she was identified so that's how that's how pervasive this kind of stuff is in terms of us yeah, being able to make that's, that's about as sad a testament as i can think that that just sums up everything that i've been saying is people right and i don't i don't look at i don't blame people for keeping their head down because they have other responsibilities in life and stuff like that but what those people who want to keep their head down can do is they can support the people that are sticking their head out exactly correct um like us. Um, okay. So she's from a European country. English is not her first language, but she says, this is my third pregnancy. And now I was quote unquote old at 38. I opted for the panorama test and foolishly for the California first trimester screening. My OBGYN didn't counsel me. She simply offered both. I assumed it was up to European standards. Spoiler alert. It's not fast forward as As to the handout I received, I was instructed to get my blood work done before 11 weeks and schedule my ultrasound later. The blood work involves PAPA-A and beta-HCG. I did it at 10 plus weeks. I know my exact conception date. My ultrasound was at 12 plus two. It went fine. Looked good, 1.9 millimeter largest neck fold. Knew this was fine. The tech leaves the room, comes back 25 minutes later and says, Here's the office of the genetic counselor. That one moves in, hands me a paper. Your risk of downs is one in four. Let's talk about options. How about a CBS tomorrow morning at 9 a.m.? It's currently 4 p.m. 
I was like, I ordered a panorama. Shouldn't we just wait? She says, no, panorama is often wrong. A CVS is much more precise. I asked for my husband. She says, no, due to Corona. I say, panorama tests, placenta cells, just like the CVS, she says no, which I want you, I want to ask you questions about that. Yeah, I, I'm, uh, I'm writing down some questions already that you're, so keep going. Uh, she continues to badger me. My pregnancy is doomed. Even if baby was healthy, I'll deliver before 30 weeks as my low Papa A indicates. It takes 45 minutes to get out. <laughs> my OB calls, panorama risk says low risk, all good. I want answers. My panor What's my true risk? My OBGYN emails me, take two aspirin a day, 162 milligrams, and I want you to do an NST and biophysical profile weekly starting at 32 weeks. It feels wrong. I look at my paper. It says gestational age 12 plus three, much too advanced. I call the California lab. They say, we do not have reference values for 11 weeks. My blood was drawn way before that, 10 plus two. I say Papa A doubles every three days. This test is off. Lab says, we know. We cast a wide net. So my test is wrong. Why would I base further tests on this? I refuse to take aspirin. At 20 weeks, I have an organ scan. It includes Dopplers. They're terrific. They badger me to repeat at 32 weeks. My midwife uh, didn't think Papa A means much. I have my ultrasound at 32 weeks, baby and Doppler, perfect. Badger to repeat at 36 weeks, perfect. MFM says to do weekly NST, I'm offended. She says, oh, your placenta looks fine, but looks fine now, but they can die from one day to the next. I didn't know that placentas died, um, but I say, I'll think about it. I, I refuse to do this knowing it's BS. I give birth at exactly 40 weeks without issues to a healthy baby boy, my biggest child yet at nearly seven pounds. Uh, small babies are normal for my family, so I was cautious about an incorrect IUGR diagnosis. I think if someone wants to know if a baby has T21 or 13 or 18, a NIPT is a good option. Skip this first trimester screen. It's awfully flawed and can give you a wrong diagnosis that makes your normal pregnancy into a runaround high-risk pregnancy for no reason, causing so much stress. I followed my instincts and knew my baby was fine. My 40-week placenta looked perfect, by the way. Wow. Wow. Talk about, so a cascade, we've had, talk about a cascade of interventions. Yeah. So we've had a couple of conversations about actually the um, NIPT test leading to similar things. So um, I just thought this was so perfectly timed that uh, I just wanted to kind of put that into the conversation about, you know, when I'm counseling people about doing genetic testing I always have the conversation with them about what are you going to do with this information? If you found out that there was something going on with this pregnancy, would you terminate? Uh, you know, would you, would it make you feel more relaxed to have this information or less relaxed? Like, you know, really start to look at what are your reasons to get this test? I, I opted in my second and third pregnancies to do no ultrasounds and no testing because I got scared in my first. And it, it lent to really not enjoying my pregnancy. And um, so, you know, if I was over 40 and got pregnant, I may have a different decision to make. You know, those were when I was younger. But it is within your right to be able to say, like, 
that's not something that's not information that's going to change how I would handle this pregnancy and knowing that the further stress would um, be detrimental to how you manage your pregnancy. So I just kind of wanted to put that in as we start this conversation. Can I ask a real quick question? Because I was a little confused about the dates. What the 10 and a half, 12 and a half, what was that all about again? Because how do they come up with a one in four? Was it just based on her age and her PAP-A result? Because she had a nuchal translucency that was perfectly normal. I mean, I know she doesn't explain that, but she talks a little bit about her dates thing. She says something about 12 and a half, the PAP-A goes up, but doubles or blah, blah, blah. What what was the story with that? I, I, I thought maybe you would know a little bit more about that than I would. Well, she apparently she had they, the reason they were worried is she had a low pap a right. Um, Quite frankly, yeah. you know, I'm not even yeah. an expert on pap a and uh, and and first trimester screening anymore because I haven't done one in probably a decade. Well, ever low since ever since NIPT came out. Yeah, so let's talk about that because some a lot of doctors' offices are still doing that, and I don't know other states, but in California we have something called a first trimester screening and a second trimester screening, which right. you do in conjunction. So um, you might want to talk about why. Well, they I'm going to talk that. about it in, in, in typical Doctor Stu fashion. I think that um, that the the um, maternal fetal medicine people who are who basically control all this stuff. Um, their job is to what <laughs> is, to, is to find problems. Yes. And so they look for problems where there aren't problems to, you know, and sometimes that makes problems and the NIPT test came along because, well, let's just, let's, let's back up for a second. I want to get, well, let's stay with this right now, but we all, there's also genetic testing that can occur before you're even pregnant. We'll talk about that too. Okay, good. But, but we're already in the first trimester. So let's talk about this for a second. So prior to NIPT, which is non-invasive prenatal testing, and there's multiple companies, people may have heard of Materna or Panorama or uh, Natera. Natera. There's, there's different companies out there. You've heard of them. They're all the same. Uh, basically, they test for, as you said, the basic things they test for are um, Downs, trisomy 18, trisomy 13, as well as some um, um, microdiletions and some other things, and they can also tell you the sex uh, of your baby. And prior to that, the way it was done was they were done, they did they initially just had uh, an AFP test. And that was looking for, uh, AFP is high when there's open spina bifida, that sort of thing. And then they combined it and they made a triple screen. And then they ended up making a quad screen. And with a quad screen, you end up drawing some stuff in the first trimester and another set of bloods in the second trimester. And they put it all together and it comes out with an algorithm that gives you a, a, a risk ratio. Now, the risk of having Down syndrome at age 35, which is this artificial number that came out, we've talked about this on the podcast before, um, is about one in 200. So anything that came back at less than one in 200 would imply that you should have an amniocentesis. Mm -hmm. All right, this was, this was um, because your second trimester results don't come back till 15, 16, 17, too late to do a CVS, that's where amniocentesis came in. The problem, of course, was that anybody who's over 35, the numbers are automatically going to come back that you should have an amniocentesis, even though there's like no risk because that's the way the number, the, the, the test was set up and the, and the way the, um, the uh, decision tree was made, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody over 35 was just got an amniocentesis. Anyone under 35 whose risk 
happened to come back at less than one in 200, was told they had a positive triple screen or positive quad screen, and they would go and get referred for an amniocentesis. Mm-hmm. Well, finally, they can, and this was great business, for, by the way, for maternal fetal medicine specialists. You just see them once in the first trimester, you see them in the second trimester, or they maybe the OB seeing them, but then as soon as there's something wrong, they're going off to the maternal fetal medicine specialist who then gets to do the procedure because most OBs didn't learn how to do amniocentesis. I have, you know, being me, I did my own amniocentesis because I was a resident. I, when I was chief resident, I demanded to learn how to do it because I didn't know where I was going to go or where I was going to end up and I wanted to know how to do it. So I did my own. I did over probably over, you know, five, four or 500 amniocentesis over my career. Um, but um, it's a money-making thing. You charge a lot of money for that. And then you charge for the ultrasound. There's all these different codes. And then you have people come back and, you know, they come back for their 20 week scan. And then you sort of get them in the cycle and you bring them in and you bring them in. Well, out came NIPT and NIPT is a simple blood test brought in your doctor's office after 10 weeks mm-hmm. that gives you a, 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 you know, a lower high risk thing. It's basically says it's negative or, or positive for this or that. And the other thing it comes back negative. The predictive values of those, the, the sensitivity and specificity are in the 98, 99, 99 plus percent um, assurity, mm-hmm. right, what I think. So um, by the way, just in case people don't know, sensitivity is a test that's positive um, when something is wrong. Yeah. And like the metal detector at the airport, high sensitivity. Specificity is a test that's negative when nothing is wrong. So the medical detector at the airport has high sensitivity, lousy specificity, keys and belt buckles and you know whatever you got. Um, so um, this test was both sensitive and specific. So it was positive when there's something wrong and it was negative when there's nothing wrong. That's a really good test. So if all they had to do is have a blood test drawn, there's no reason to see your maternal fetal medicine specialist anymore. Okay. Yeah, it made the first trimester screen or the, the quad screen uh, obsolete. It made right? it obsolete, except yeah. for the fact that there's some rarer diseases that they still look for. Um, I'm not even going to get into them today because I don't even know what Smith, Opus, Lineley, whatever sim- syndrome is. Never seen a case. I know it can happen. You know, there's over 200, 300 things they screen for now prenatally. I mean, not prenatally, um, preconception for people right. who are carriers. And this starts to get ridiculous after a while. Um, and then they, you know, of course, then they added the nuchal translucency screen in, which was a really decent test prior to NIPT because the that looked at the, the thickness of the neck and combined it with mm-hmm. some blood work. And it gave you a, a fairly good predictive value of whether your baby has any sort of risk of genetic problems or not. Nothing is always, nothing is never. Um, so what maternal fetal medicine people did after the NIPT came out is they said, well, we still have to do your nuchal translucency screening because you know that's another way of, of confirming that things are okay. Well, of course they did because otherwise they wouldn't have any business. Right. So they lost, it's like, it's like when a study came out saying that mammograms, routine screening mammogram isn't helpful in preventing cancer death. Who was the leading organization against that? All the radiologic societies of the world. Right. <laughs> of course. Of course they were against it. Um, you don't need mammograms. Oh, well, all right. And that's another, maybe we could put that as a topic for another day. I mean, that's not an OB topic, but we can talk about that. But the anyway. NIPT is the NIPT is not uh, without issues oh, no. as well. No. Oh, it's not perfect. No test, no test is going to be perfect. But if you have a yeah. normal NIPT and you're going to get a 20-week ultrasound, 
that's probably pretty darn good for genetic screening um, right. for most so people without a family history. We're not talking, I mean, people that have a previously affected child or a family history, obviously, of something that's genetically passed on, there's much more in-depth things that you should do. And genetic counseling is, is important and maternal and uh, early uh, screening is important for those people. But routine, we're talking about routine screening. Right. Um, Again, we, you and I live in a non-fear-based world, so we don't, we don't look go into pregnancy thinking there's something wrong. Most of my colleagues do. And so why not do the testing? And you just explain why not do the testing. Your letter explained it because it can lead you down this path of nonsense where you end yeah. up with all this stuff and all this worrying. And what did that do to the epigenetics of the baby growing inside of you right. while you were worried for, for nine months? Right. Right. So I just summed up all genetic screening in that in that part. <laughs> we, can, we can we can break it down a little bit more, but um, yeah, I don't think the quad screen. You know, in, in my world where we have access to these things, even if insurance doesn't pay for the NIPT testing, all the companies that I know of have a maximum cash price of around three hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. You know, they charge your insurance company like $1,500, I don't know, $2,000, but, but if you're paying cash, they'll take $300 and you can go online to the site, like, like uh, Maternity 21, you go on their site and you pre-register and then they know that it's coming and, and it's 300 bucks or 295 bucks or whatever it is. So it's a test worth paying for, for people that can afford it. People that can't afford it or in, you know, in Medicaid clinics around the country where they're, they're not going to be spending this extra money then then there is some value probably to the quad screen um, as a screening test. But again, they should be given informed consent, like we always say. And in those kind of clinics, you're never going to get informed consent. You might be handed a brochure and people should actually read the brochures and then ask questions. Right. And, like, and we always say, if you don't get your questions answered or you feel like you're annoying the person, then, then, then find another practitioner like, like Lauren did or threaten exactly. to do it, like she threatened exactly. to do Right. Um, you know, I would, the only other thing I would say about the NIPT test is that I've had, um, a couple of people who have gotten flagged for, um, not the, the three trisomies, but I think it's the aneuploides. Is that how you say it? Well, they're all, anu all, all aneuploides. All the trisomies are aneuploides. The sex aneuploides. Oh, well, the, yeah. The sex one is, yeah, that's just, aneuploid just means an abnormal number. Oh, yeah. So anyways, I've had some people who have gotten flagged for that. I think that's caught a lot. Those are caught a lot more with this test, showing that there's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of downsides for the majority of the people who are screened for them. So I think it's being used a lot more for women under 35 because people you know, want to do um, a gender reveal party and they want to tell people they want to know the sex right away. And, and so I would just, you know, really think through those questions that I talked about in the beginning, you know, what are you going to use this information for if you did get, uh, you know, a result that was not promising, would you terminate the pregnancy? Would it change the course of your pregnancy? How would you feel emotionally? Um, would that improve things for you or not? And that's a very, that's a very personal choice, you know? And, um, but I think that taking it 
a little more seriously and not just thinking about it as like a way to get the sex early um, could save some people the headache of kind of going down that path of getting a false negative, a false positive. Yeah, and for those people that don't think that they need it, and whether it's age related or whether it's just confidence or whether it's because you wouldn't do anything different anyway, um, as a home birth practitioner, if I could have you do one test, it would be the 20 week scan. Yeah, that's what it would be, because almost all babies, the aneuploidies, whether it's downs or other things, will have some anatomic abnormality that you'll be able to pick up at your 20 week scan. But also I caution you to go to try to find a, a person that does 20 week scans that is not an anxious person. It's not, it's not a it's not a fear monger. Yeah, and, and that's, it's not easy to find those sorts of things. Yeah, if I could have you in my pregnancy, I'm not getting pregnant again, by the way, the shop is closed, but um, I I would feel comfortable with that. But in the majority of the time, that's not what you're getting. So, you know, I think it's a reasonable thing to also say that you don't want an ultrasound if that's something that you feel like whatever it is that your pregnancy brings is what you're accepting into your heart. And there's a lot of especially religious, spiritual people who believe that. Um, that's okay. That's a right that you have to be able to say, um, I don't I don't want these additional tests. So I just wanna be able to make sure and say that as well. Yeah, you know, this, this thing just popped into my head. We're trying tying everything together today. It's called like conviction of thought, all right? Like the, the doctors who told the pregnant woman with a jade incision that she should never have, she'll never be able to deliver vaginally, all right? That's misinformation. Yeah. Should he be reprimanded by the American Board of OBGYN? Should he possibly have disciplinary mm -hmm. action put in against him? Or is it only the misinformation that they decide is misinformation and is it only related to the COVID vaccine? Right, of mm. course, of course. Mm. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> because that's misinformation. And some of the things that this woman was told, your your letter reader, your letter writer, was yeah. especially by the tech who came back and scared the bejeebers out of her, right? Yeah. It, was a, it was a tech that said these things, right? Um, I think that's what she said. The woman came back in the room. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what yeah. she said. I mean, mm -hmm. what? They don't even let, in, in most of, radiologist office and most the tech doesn't even get to talk while they're scanning the person right you know they may Which be going they, unsettling they may, for people yeah, yeah they may be making faces that they're seeing something and they're looking at the screen for a really long time and you know the patient will go, well, what is it it's just the doctor will be in in a few minutes <laughs> what yeah 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 and in my case i had to wait two or three weeks to get the information back in the day you know, and sitting there and like wondering if my baby was okay, which he was totally fine, you know, it was just, it was horrible. Um, yeah, you know, so. I, 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 that brings up just, to, you know, these things trigger, I have such things, I have such a long history of events happening in my life, but I, I still remember that, that I consulted on some people who were seen by one of the big HMOs here in Southern California, you know, they went in for their like their 12 week appointment, they couldn't find a heartbeat. Now that happens at 12 weeks sometime. And they scheduled for an ultrasound in two weeks. I'm pounding the table, if you can hear that on the, uh, on the mic. <laughs> um, how do you do that to somebody? Because it's not, you're not thinking about the effects that that has on them. 
Yeah, you're just not thinking about it. How do you it. not walk them into another room and find the heartbeat? How do you not do that as a human being? Yeah. Yeah. Don't know. I don't know either. So um, um, did you want to talk about uh, genetic testing prior to getting? Yeah, I did, well, it's, you know, it's, it's something that people should know about. Um, and it really is a lot of it's based on your on your family history, of course. But if you if you have a family history of a gene disorder and the most common ones are things like cystic fibrosis or fragile X or sickle cell or Tay-Sachs in Jews or spinal muscular atrophy. These are the most common ones. But there's boy, if you ever get a. Uh, like a genetic test prior to conception. Like sometimes people who are going through IVF mm -hmm. will be taught, talked into, or maybe even request getting tested first so that they know that they're fine to go ahead and do this expensive procedure. Right. And you get the list back and it's like 200 different uh, disorders, things you've never heard of. Yeah. Some of my favorites are like maple syrup urine disease, which is an interesting one. And, and then there, I mean, there's just, there's Neiman Pictus. I mean, there's just so many of them. I can't, but they're, they're things you've never heard of, including things like MTFHR, by the way. But mm -hmm. you can screen for all that prenatally. And if you're both carriers of something, then you should get genetic counseling. You can decide so that you know ahead of time what the information it may not change what you do. But again, to make an informed decision, you need what? Information. The unbiased this is, why this is why she's so <laughs> you better come back to midwifery <laughs> thank you god you better come back so yeah so you can have a blood test drawn you and your partner can have blood test drawn ahead of time mm -hmm. um and then and that, that's available and, and people can do that and that's not a scare tactic I, I don't know very many people that ever do that but uh, again if you have a family history of something it's worthwhile to check for and if it's just like cystic fibrosis you can just do a test for cystic fibrosis you don't have to for carrier status. You don't have to uh, do this whole panel of things. But, and I went online and I found out what does it cost to do these sorts of panels? If you have insurance you, and it's referred by a doctor, usually it's covered other than your co-pays or whatever that is. But if you wanna pay cash for it, it can run anywhere from $100 to like $3,000, depending on what test you're testing for. So by the way, always check the prices before you agree to any test. <laughs> That's true, I've heard horror stories about that too they didn't know what they were getting tested for that's and then they correct and they, they get a bill for freaking two thousand dollars for something yeah <laughs> yeah i know i know um you know and then people i think know what cvs is chorionic villa sampling it is done if you have a uh an ipt test or you have a, a nuchal transfer or something that's very strange and you want to do it it's something that can be done somewhere between about 10 to 12 and a half 13 weeks um Advantages to doing it are that it's you get the it's you get the results back really quickly, and uh, the miscarriage rate is small in good hands. But you want to go to somebody who does this routinely. We have a couple of people in LA that do it routinely. John Williams is one of them, but but um, and they're very good at it. Um, and if you get beyond about 13 and a half, 14 weeks, then probably amniocentesis is a better way to go. And amniocentesis is where they they prep your tummy, they give you some lidocaine, they inject it, the, they put a needle into the uterine cavity under ultrasound guidance, very low risk nowadays with ultrasound guidance of, of any kind of miscarriage or injury to the baby of any kind. Uh, like I said, I've done a lot of these. And so I know how, if I can do it, <laughs> no, um, it's very, very uh, hand-eye coordination. It's very simple to do. And um, the miscarriage rate, you know, is, is between one in 600, one in 800. It's a very small number. Uh, so if you have a 
NIPT test that comes back showing you have a risk, you know, of downs at one in whatever it is, one in 20 or something like that, one in 50 or whatever, then yeah, it makes sense to do that. But again, that's an individual decision because one in 50 is only 2%. So. Right. And, and what, and, and what does it change? Well, it's for people that might do something different. Yeah. For people yes. who might do something different. Yeah, and do something, um, different. And then, do something different. We mean termination. Let's just say it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then CVS, do you want to explain that procedure since you explained amniocentesis? Oh, yeah, CVS is done vaginally, so they um, almost always vaginally. And it's uh, uh, you're up in stirrups, and they clean off your cervix, and they pass a little catheter, again, under ultrasonic guidance on your belly. Um, they're watching, and the little catheter goes into the placental tissue. And they do it's a little aspirate, just suck back a little bit, sucks in a little teeny piece of the placental tissue. And... The placental tissue has the same chromosomal makeup as the baby, except in rare, rare cases. So if you got something, this is getting really into the weeds, but if you got something back on the placenta, like a mosaicism, which is where you had normal 46XY and then some 47 triple X, whatever, um, that can happen sometimes in a placenta. And then you'd probably want to confirm that with an amnio down the road. Um, but those are really rare and we don't need to spend any more time on that. Okay. Uh, um right. When I did, you didn't explain um, when she said that the panorama tests placenta cells just like the CVS. Is that true? Panorama does not check placental cells. It checks no. free, free cell-free DNA. It checks for, I'm sorry, it checks for DNA. Uh, it checks yeah. for baby, baby's DNA in mom's body. Right. That's what I thought. Okay. I yeah, just that's wanted to different. That's different. Did she say that? And I didn't, I, I missed that in the letter. Yes, she did. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting my terminology mixed up, but yeah, it, it checks for, I think there's another word I'm missing there, but it's something cell-free DNA. <clears throat> and and um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And when you have a baby, you know, some of that baby's DNA integrates into yourself. You have part of your baby inside of you when you do that. So yeah. that's, that's kind of cool. You always carry your baby cells forever. Somewhere, yeah, somewhere in your body, you could find that. That's the whole, you know, what you want to say, well, how can they, how do they do a, a NIPT test? So they draw blood on mom and get babies because they're able to do miraculous things now. As long as yeah. they're not, as long as I'm morphing them into killer viruses, it's probably pretty cool. <laughs> it is pretty miraculous. I will say I'm, I'm uh, it's pretty impressive that you can, that you can draw someone's blood and find out the sex of their baby. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. There you go. Um, so uh, another hour and what plus has passed by with just really quickly, Bliss. It's really good seeing you. I I want to. I have some party thoughts. Can I party? Some party pa thoughts. Partying. Partying. <laughs> I knew. I know. I'm just messing with you. Yes. Party thoughts. Please. Well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Give it, us your party. You know, thoughts. I don't know exactly what I'm going to title this podcast yet, but but um, all this misdirection, coercion, immorality, propaganda. Any synonym you want to come up with. Um, and by the way, um, you know, none of this will ever, they'll never admit their grave errors, the people that are putting this stuff out. If I turn out to be wrong, or if I can tell you Simone Gold or anybody else in this, in our side of the argument turns out to be wrong, we'll admit that we're wrong. These people will never admit their grave errors. And by the way, there's no pun intended when I say that. I particularly picked that word because they are killing people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They're killing people and they're going to be killing people for years to come. Um, they didn't know what they were doing. By the way, we're treating a virus 
that they didn't know what they were doing with, that they created also. So they created something that whether, like I said, whether it got out accidentally or whether it was purposely leaked and they're still creating stuff, they're working on more, right? And you're not gonna know this, but they, I put out, by the way, on my um, Instagram TV, I put out a video yesterday. This is the clip from 2019, October of 2019, before the pandemic, and also from January of 2017, where Dr. Fauci is forecasting what's going to happen. Three years and, and, and probably four months, three years, one of them cases, and four, and four months before it happened. He's talking about how we can make this uh, into get universal vaccine acceptance and how we can do this. And there's going to be uh, an outbreak during the Trump administration. He says this, nobody cares. Nobody stops him. He's just, he's, he, you know, a lot of people I've talked to say he's too big to fail, kind of like the banks were in some of the banks and the, and the brokerage firms back in the 2008 crash. There's a book out called Too Big to Fail. And I started reading it. I really got in the woods along. I mean, the weeds was too, too involved for me. But um, yeah, certain things, they can't let him fail because everything is based on what he's been saying all along. So he's, they're gonna, they're gonna, he's never going to lose his job. He's never going to get fired, at least not in this administration. Um, and then there are people who think, that, you know, where did the flu go this year? Mm-hmm. And why are we not seeing the flu? <laughs> and then the media will pick up on the political propaganda of, well, it's because we're all wearing masks. Mm-hmm. Well, if we're all wearing masks, how come COVID is spiking? The particles are the same size. So, Good point. yeah. So it's like, it's not the mask that's protecting you from the flu because the mask isn't supposedly protecting people from COVID. So if COVID's rising, why are we not seeing the flu? And there's something called uh, viral, I remember that, I can't remember the term, but in other words, your, 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 your body is primed against viruses now because of the COVID. And so your, your nasal passages, your mucus, all that stuff, it's got a lot of antiviral stuff going on inside of it. And maybe that's what's going on. And that's why we're not seeing as much of the flu. But it's not the mask. Stop saying that. The masks work, then all these people wearing masks wouldn't be getting sick with COVID. Because again, the viral particles are the same size, more or less, all right? So in the end, the immunity of the unvaccinated people who are developing natural immunity will be able to fight off the, the variants that are coming, that are coming because of the vaccinated. The variants are coming because of the vaccine, I mean, viruses are not stupid. I mean, they're not, they don't brains, but they're not stupid and they mutate. And when everybody's getting vaccinated during pandemic, their immune system is geared up to fight this one specific protein on this one specific virus. And the minute it mutates, it's no longer really good against something else. Whereas the people who've gotten natural immunity to COVID, okay, are, are, develop, are, are, are gonna be able to stop this, this um, constant mutation into new variants. And it's going to be eventually, ironically, it's going to be the unvaccinated people who save the vaccinated people. And you can well, let's see. That. Yeah, it makes science. It's scientific. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, 10, 20,000 physicians can't all be wrong. They can't all be unethical or immoral. immoral. Or right? crazy. Or crazy. Or crazy. Yeah. I mean, and, and what's their motivation? 
What's their do they have? What's their financial motivation for putting their names on on this uh, Rome Declaration? What is our what is our motivation? You know, are we going to get elected to office because we did it? Are we going to make money? Are we going to get get a patent on a pharmaceutical? Are we going to what are we going to do? Nothing. We're doing it because it's the right thing to do. Right. Okay. Okay. So that, that's it for today. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Comments welcome. Um, you can instant message me through Instagram. You can get Bliss at uh, her Instagram, Birthing Bliss. Um, that's right, right? That's it. Birthing Bliss. Yeah, yeah. I, think it's, I think it says that at the closing anyway. <laughs> so, so <laughs> guys, uh, um, hit the recording and Bliss is going to say. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 